Well, thanks for having me this evening. Um, Craig, you can go ahead and thank you, sir. You're the man. You're welcome. All right, it's going to be a little bit different tonight. It's not going to be a traditional sermon. I'd call it more of a a talk. I don't really consider myself a preacher. Uh, So so we're going to talk about some historical evidence for the Bible, mainly in the Old Testament. Okay, so we're going to be looking at... uh, archaeology and some different things. Um, if y'all remember, uh, we've, we've had people from Answers in Genesis come and different creationists from McMurtry to the, I don't remember the other guy's name, but they came and they talked about Genesis. So we're going to move past Genesis because that's been somewhat recently covered and, and, and we're going to talk about a, a different part. But we're going to start with this lie, lie number one. Sorry, Craig. I will do that for all the other slides though. The Bible is just a bunch of made-up stories. And this is a lie that I'm sure you've heard before and will hear again or read again on some kind of social media, blog, or legitimate media source. Legitimate. And this is a quote from a world-renowned, again, quotes, expert in the Hebrew Bible and professor at the College de France and the University of Lausanne. Biblical texts are not direct historical sources. They reflect the ideas, the ideologies of their authors, and of course, of the historical context in which they were written. What he's trying to say is that the Bible was not written by Moses or scribes that existed in the same time as the judges or the kings of Israel. Rimmer means that he believes the Old Testament was written between the time of the exile and the intertestamental period. And what this means is that there's no way that it could be accurate, okay? This is on the House of Prayer Statement of Faith. We believe the Bible to be the inspired, the only infallible, authoritative word of God. This is what we as Christians should believe is the truth, the only source of absolute truth that any idea that we have as human beings should be measured by and guided by. This statement of faith and a biblical worldview are absolutely not compatible with a later writing of scriptures that convey later views and unreliable information, like that guy who is an expert on the Hebrew Bible is trying to say. This is what we believe. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. This is just one of the New Testament scriptures that affirms the Old Testament is as reliable and from God. Jesus himself quotes scripture throughout his ministry, further giving weight to the Old Testament. The Bible affirming its own authenticity is great for us who are already Christians. We know it's the truth and we are experiencing a relationship with the Lord. So it's not far-fetched for us to believe that, that this is the truth. But for a non-believer that is being critical of the Bible, the scripture affirming itself is, if you take like a critical thinking course in, in high school or college, the Bible giving credit to itself is kind of like me writing a book and then writing the review for the book. See, if they don't believe that the, that the book is right, they're not going to believe your review for it and vice versa. So I want to tonight look at Evidence, physical hard evidence that the things that happen in the Bible are true. 
Acts 17, 11. Now the Bereans were, more, were, were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see what Paul said was true. See, Paul had come to him and had told him the gospel of Jesus. And the Bereans, instead of immediately turning it down, searched the scripture, checked sources, and verified that what they had said had happened had actually happened. They weren't just taking what Paul said and either shutting it down or, or automatically, automatically believing it. They searched the scriptures to see if it was true. And the word searched here, it's uh, in the Greek, it's, I, I, I'm probably not saying this right, but it's anakrino, which means to scrutinize, investigate, interrogate, or question. The Bereans didn't simply read the scriptures, they poked, prodded, and scrutinized it. And verse 12 tells us that the result of this is that many of the Jews believed, along with a bunch of Greek women and even a few Greek men, who weren't even necessarily familiar with the scriptures, but from, from Paul's teaching and them investigating you know, what they had in, in the Septuagint and uh, the, the stories that they could verify, they, they believed it was true. Okay? Uh, this is how it is for us, too. An honest interrogation of the Bible, if you, if you run across anything you have doubts about or you have a, a stumbling block with, like, I, I don't see how this could be true, there's either somebody who has already looked into this or, you know, maybe, maybe, you're, maybe you just haven't looked hard enough. An honest interrogation of the Bible only lends to more faith in what's in it. It, it doesn't work the other way. The more you read it, the more, the more you believe it, the more you look at even extra biblical evidence that surrounds the Bible, the more you will believe it. And that's been the truth for me as, as I became an adult and, uh, you know, I, I kind of slipped away from the Lord for a while. Um, he, he, he wasn't necessarily letting me slip away, but um, I had to kind of reestablish uh, what, I, what I believed. And, and as I was going back through the Bible, I was like, I don't, you know, I, I had doubts. I, I had serious doubts. But the more, the more I looked at it and the more I, I looked up things online, you know, try to find legitimate things that made reasonable sense that didn't conflict with what the Bible says, the more I realized that it, it was true, every single word of it. And I think we should be more like the Bereans in, in our approach to the scripture. Just because Jerry tells you something, you know, just because anybody tells you something, that preacher on the radio, the preacher on TV, if you have doubts about it, you, you got to investigate it. Don't just leave it sitting there because that'll grow into like a serious problem for you in your walk. So tonight, I, I'm going to go, at, you know, a little bit out of the way of like a regular sermon to... Again, go with uh, some archaeological stuff. C.S. Lewis, most of you have probably read something by him or at least seen a Narnia movie or, or, or something. At 17 years old, he wrote in a letter to a friend that said, I believe in no religion. There is absolutely no proof for any of them. And from a philosophical standpoint, Christianity is not even the best. That's him before he was a Christian at 17 years old. That's pretty much, I don't believe, right? 
he became well-educated, Cambridge, Oxford, you know, all those, those high-class English universities. But at these universities, he came under the positive influences of people such as G.K. Chesterton, Neville Coghill, Hugo Dyson, and of course, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. These were his group of friends that were Christians that influenced him. They poured into him and defended the Bible, appealing to his intellect and logic. The Bible is not just an emotional device. You read it and you, you get this charge of you know, energy and emotion, like, oh man, the Lord did this. Ah, it's, it's, also, it's logically true. More than anything that you can think of that is fundamentally true, the Bible spells absolutely all of it out, okay? If you think, if you think that somehow we just came to be and the earth spins around the sun perfectly without somehow running into it and the moon spins around us just perfectly and all of our electrons and, and protons and every single little tiny atom that we can't even see inside of us is just an accident, you're crazier than me. I, uh, I had a conversation with an agnostic a few years ago, it was probably five years, and he asked me, you know, how do you know? Like, why do you, why do you believe that, that the Bible is true? He's like, I don't know if I should even believe in any religion or God or not. And I told him it was because I felt it to be true. And while that was a correct answer, it was a right answer, it was not a satisfactory answer to him. And after it came out of my mouth, I realized I wasn't satisfied with that answer. That I, I couldn't answer that question, you know, to, to the fullest. It's kind of one of the things that drove me to go to, uh, to take uh, Bible classes and get a degree through Liberty. Is that conversation right there. Because if, you know, if, if I can't, it, to somebody who's open to having the conversation about it, if I can't convey the truth to him in, in, in a good way, that's, that's kind of a knock on me. Am I, you know, the, the Lord, the Great Commission tells us to go evangelize and make disciples. And I was unable to properly evangelize to this person because I didn't have the information that I needed to do it. So I, I believe it is extremely valuable for us to not only just read the Bible, but have at least a base of it's called apologetics, but it's defending the truth of the Bible. And that's, I'm going to be speaking a few more times over the next month, and that's kind of the stuff we're, we're going to be doing and answering kind of hard questions and confronting lies like, like, like the ones we're confronting tonight. And hopefully, you know, I, I can't give you all the answers because we're limited by time and space, but hopefully if if you're interested in any of the things that I end up talking about over these you know, next few Sunday nights, you are driven to investigate it yourself and get a better knowledge base for yourself. So when those opportunities come for you, you're able to confidently tell people about the gospel and not just, well, Jesus came and, and died on, on the cross and then he was resurrected and, you know, believe in him and you'll be saved. That is the gospel and that is the truth. But people today have more questions than that. And I, I can't stress that enough. It, it is the Holy Spirit's job to draw them and speak into their lives, but it's also our job. He commissioned us to do this. 
Okay, so we have to, to the fullest extent and to the fullest effort, do our best to learn what we should. All right. Biblical archaeology. Obviously, it's not like this picture of Indiana Jones here, swapping the idol for the bag of dirt so the, the traps don't happen and the boulder chases him. But it's more like this picture here on the right where they dig out a nine-by-nine nine square and they start digging down. And as they dig down, they, they keep everything organized like a, a foot at a time in, in, in different sections. They send them off to get analyzed. Okay? And one of the ways they do this is they analyze and, and they can tell what time frame it's from is by the different uh, styles of the pottery. That one on the top left would have been what they used around the time of the judges and the early kings of Israel. See how it's kind of simple? It's just a piece of clay kind of folded up and then the, I was going to say fuse, but the, uh, the wick would come out of that part that's kind of like burnt looking right here on the right side of it. And then they'd have the oil in the back, you know, poured in a little pool in the back side and the wick would... Uh, would burn separate from it. And then the one on the top right would have been the kind of style that was from around the time of Jesus, uh, you know, the turn of the millennium from BC to AD. And then the one at the bottom would have been from the, uh, the late Byzantine Empire, early Islamic era around uh, the Middle East. The Hittite Empire. Archaeology has only been done as a scientific and historical study for the last 200 years. Before that, archaeology was basically just looting and grave robbing. This left room for people to doubt the historical truth of the Bible. In the 1800s, the existence of the Hittite Empire was doubted as there was no evidence of them ever existing to be found before this time. The lack of evidence was a point that people who criticized the Bible used as ammunition to say that there was no way that the Bible was completely true or else it would be obvious that the Hittites, who were woven into the story of the Bible from Genesis 25 and the story of Abraham burying Sarah to the story of uh, David and Bathsheba with Uriah the Hittite as he stole his wife. So they would argue that if we can't find evidence of these people who are extremely important throughout the Old Testament, then the Bible's probably not true because the Bible explains that they were a great people. And this is part of the ruins that were found in 1906. This is one of the gates. You see how detailed the lines and stuff were. But they found 10,000 royal tablets with the history of the Hittite civilization on these tablets in 1906, confirming you know, that they did exist and that the Bible was, was true. A, a point of, a big point of doubt in, in the minds of, of critical historians and stuff like that was this empire, but in 1906, they, they found this. It's in Asia Minor. It's north of, uh, north of Israel, north of uh, Aram and Damascus. It's modern day Turkey. Yeah. Um, and the, the tablets even, even told when the city was founded. This one in particular, uh, the name of it is Hattusha, was founded in 1600 BC. So 
around the time of, of Abraham-ish was, was when they, they started building this city and it became the, the capital of the Hittite Empire. Another point of contention that, exi- that has existed for a long time has revolved around the location of Sodom and Gomorrah. Surely there would be evidence for a destruction like the Bible describes as it's an apocalyptic kind of destruction as, as we read it in Genesis, like it's horrifically bad, supposedly. So critical historians and critical archaeologists would argue that if, if we can't find evidence of this, then it must not have happened. Well, one of the reasons for that is that we could have been looking in the wrong place for a really long time. See, the traditional area that they were looking was in this southern area where it says Babadra, Numera, Esafi, down there south of the Dead Sea. But the north end of the Dead Sea, they found ruins that actually fit the uh, almost exactly word for word. These findings that they found have fit into the biblical narrative. Uh, for example, um, uh, Tal el Hamam is what they think would have been Sodom because it was the biggest city uh, during that era. It, the, uh, the ruins, the smoldering ruins would have been visible from where Abraham was in Hebron down there because Hebron's a higher elevation. He's kind of looking down. He could see that easily, a big cloud of smoke. Um, another, uh, it, I'm just going to name a few here. There's, there's like 15 different ones, so I'm going, only going to name two or three. Um, another is that in this group of cities to the right here, this uh, Sarabid El-Mushakar, basically these first five going up that way, all of them were destroyed at about the same time as confirmed by pottery. And in some of them, there were a, a three-foot layer of ash with human remains in it. And um, another uh, confirming, kind of falling in line with what the Bible says, uh, point of evidence is that none of these cities were inhabited for another five to six hundred years afterwards. The destruction was so terrible that people remembered and they didn't move back onto these sites until after the Bronze Age was over and into the Iron Age when uh, the Israelites had come. We're, we're moving back that direction. Um, next. This one's going to be really interesting to you, I believe. Let me find where I'm at in here. Um, when looking at evidence for the historical facts, events, and people from the Bible, it's likely that more and more will be found as excavation continues in the Middle East. What is difficult, if not impossible, for archaeology to verify are supernatural events. However, there have been a few things like this that have been found that are extremely difficult to explain apart from the Bible. Can anyone tell me how the rock on the right was made? It's called Trinitite. Extreme heat. This... This piece on the right is from Trinity, New Mexico. Anybody know what they did out there? Nuclear testing. Only places that these kinds of rocks have been found. That is melted dirt. 
And it's, it's, it's become a whole different substance because of how intense the heat was. And it, can anybody guess where that thing on the left was found? It was around that area that I showed you on the map above the Dead Sea, around where they think um, might have actually been Sodom. And that's, that's one of, of several pieces of pottery that were straight melted um, by in, intense, intense heat. Um, can anybody tell me, anybody ex-fireman or anything like that, can anybody tell me how hot a burning building or a house fire is? Just estimate. A regular destruction, like if somebody would have set the city on fire and it was burning to the ground, the temperature would have been anywhere from 1,600 to 1,800 degrees, okay? Just a regular burn. It takes several thousand degrees of heat to make a piece of pottery melt like that. In a blind survey, they took this piece here on the left in a blind survey and sent it to the uh, U.S. Geological Laboratory in New Mexico. They sent the, the, the piece on the left off there to get it analyzed, and the, the head of research said it was the same thing, the same substance as what was created by a nuclear bomb. They found that in the ash layer that is dated to the time of Abraham. So I don't, I don't know. If you, got, if you got a better explanation for what that is or how it got there than, you know, the Lord's terrible destruction of the area, then please explain it to me. I don't know. All right. This, this is real interesting too, because this contradicts another point of contention that critical scholars of the Bible try to, try to make. This smashed up monument was placed by Hazel of Aram in the Israelite city of Dan after the Aramans had taken over many of the northern kingdom cities. This is the same Hazel, Hazel, however you want to say it. <laughs> who God told Elijah to anoint as king of Aram and who Elisha had wept over when God showed him what Hazel would do to the Israelites. In 1 Kings 19, 17, it reads that Yehiel will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Hazel and Elisha will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Yehu. On the monument, he himself, this is his monument he had made, he claims to have... Uh, defeated the, the Israelite kings, the northern and the southern. Uh, as we know, he initially, you know, beat them in, in, in battle and forced them to pull back. And we know from the Bible that Yehu was the one who actually went through and cleaned out Abraham's family and actually killed those kings. He finished the job that Hazel started. So the Bible is very much on point here. Um, but what is really interesting about this, and it's kind of highlighted, you can kind of see it, uh, they kind of highlighted with chalk the, the white letters right there. And the white letters say that it's it basically explaining that he defeated a king of Israel from the house of David, right? Prior to them finding this, there was very, very, very little evidence that pointed to uh, King David actually existing, and that was another point that critical 
scholars and people would point to and be like, well, it's just Israelite mythology, the whole rivalry between Saul and David, that's just made up to make their story, you know, more, more of a, a great fantasy. But if Hazel was pointing out that he defeated, it's a, it was a point of pride for him. He defeated a king of Israel of the house of David. He's like, I beat David's offspring down. He's pointing out that he's acknowledging it's a foreign power. You know, this isn't Israelites. This is a foreign power acknowledging the line of David, which points to his existence very much so. And it's very hard to refute. If I could get somebody to look up, 2 Chronicles 32, 1 through 5, and somebody else to look up, 2 Kings 20, 20. You can go to the next slide, Craig. Thank you. Anybody got 2 Chronicles 31, or 32, 1 through 5? After these things, the establishment thereof, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and entered into Judah and encamped against the fenced cities and thought to win them for himself. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib was come and that it was uh, purposed to fight against Jerusalem, he took counsel with his princes, his mighty men, to stop the waters of the fountains which were without the city, and they did help him. So there was gathered much people together who stopped all the fountains and the brook that ran through the midst of the land, saying, why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? And he strengthened himself and built up all the wall that was broken and raised it up to the towers and another wall without and repaired Milo in the city of David and made darts and shields in abundance. All right. Thanks, Jerry. This tunnel on the left is that tunnel that he dug. There's an inscription inside of it that tells us how they did it. Uh, the tunnel is mentioned in 2 Kings 20.20, 20, if somebody would read that real fast. So just briefly mentioned in the Bible, in the kind of finish up of this is King Hezekiah's reign. Oh, yeah, he built a tunnel in the Pool of Siloam at the end. Well, this is the tunnel that he dug, and I got some information here on it. On that inscription inside of it, it tells us how they did it, even. I mean, in a, in a secret tunnel, they still left an inscription, which is kind of, to me, like God kind of pushed them in that direction. Here, put this in there so when people find this a long time from now, they're going to be blown away that this is what this is. Um, this, thing, this thing wasn't even found until, oh my goodness, it was 1972, I believe. I forgot to write it down or put it in here. But it was, it, it was lost for almost 2,000 years, this tunnel, until some kids were swimming down by the old Jerusalem water hole, I guess. <laughs> and, and they were like, I guess they investigated where the water was coming from and realized that it was Hezekiah's tunnel that, where he'd stopped up the springs of Gihon and flowed the water into the city so they could withstand a siege from Sennacherib. The, uh, the tunnel is a third of a mile long underground 
And it, at some points, it's more than 150 feet of rock and dirt over the head of where they would have dug this. And another interesting point about it is the inscription tells us that they started digging from two opposite ends. One started at the springs that they stopped up and the other started in Jerusalem and somehow they met in the middle. So miracle of miracles and miracle that it's still there and that inscription is still there that we, that we can still see and, and kind of boost our, you know, give us some, some ammunition for our, our defense of the Bible a little bit. Um, the broad wall, obviously that was, this, this one was, is, has been commonly known for a while, but they found that when they were doing construction uh, just a few decades ago after uh, Israel had become a nation again and they, and they were re, kind of rebuilding things and they, they found the broad wall that fits, the, fits perfectly the description of, of what Hezekiah did when he added on to the city to prepare, prepare for Sennacherib's siege, which is kind of a, uh, it's kind of a sermon, a little mini sermon in itself how he prepared in all these physical ways for Sennacherib, but he still took the letter, the threatening letter from Sennacherib, laid it out before the Lord and prayed over it. I think there's a lesson to be learned there about, you know, preparing both ways. But I got, on, got down a rabbit hole there, sorry. These, this is just an example of a bulle or a seal of one of the kings of Israel. They would have had either a stamp or a ring and they would have, you know, had uh, clay and they would have pressed the seal into it to show that that was their document that they signed, that order, their order that, that was their decree. That was the word I was looking for, their decree that was going into circulation. And there are several st seals still in existence that include the names of the kings of Judah, especially, including Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and Manasseh. And in case you're wondering, those four kings are right in a row in the Bible. And, and it, it would not only say um, this belonged to uh, Hezekiah, but it would say who they were the son of as well. So it just, it, we got a whole dynasty of kings that are identified by these seals that they found. Um, some interesting ones uh, in particular, if you've spent much time in Jeremiah, which I regrettably have not spent a ton of time in Jeremiah, so I had to look up where these verses were, but in Jeremiah 36.4 and then 36.10, it mentions the name of uh, two seals that they found a, with their name and then who they were the son of exactly as it says it in the Bible. And excuse me if I'm saying this wrong, but it's Jemariah, son of Shaphan and Baruch, son of Neriah, the scribe. They found their seals in a burnt down room for, from the, uh, uh, the, the, the Babylonian destruction. There was a room with all these letters and, and, and sealed letters that burned down and collapsed and when the, the room burned down and collapsed, the heat hardened all these seals and preserved them. So when they were found, they were, they were still legible. And the ancient Hebrew was able to be read off of them. And that's where they found uh, several of the other seals of, of the, the kings of Judah as well were in, were in this room. But the fact that they found the seal of one of the writers 
of one of the books of the Bible. He, he, he was being dictated to him by Jeremiah, but Baruch actually wrote down the words. I mean, it says it at the, at the beginning of the book. Um, now, I don't really want to take up too much of your time or bore you to death, but uh, there is absolutely a ton, a ton of evidence for the New Testament. Um, there's Herod's palace right there. I mean, you can see there, it's kind of dark, but there's a, you know, there's a kind of a uh, auditorium down there towards the bottom. And then all, there's pillars and stuff still there left over. It's fairly easy to confirm uh, a lot of the details that Luke especially includes in his stories uh, in, in the book of Luke and in Acts from a lot of the things that that have been found almost in abundance um, throughout uh, Turkey now and uh, you know Judea. Um, one of the one of the prominent things that they found are these coins, like the like the example I have right there. They found coins of uh, Herod, Antipas, um, of Claudius, and all these different people that ta- Paul talked to. They pro- they've almost found a coin for every single person. Every single Roman official that um, Luke lists as Paul talking to, so it's it's extremely hard to doubt that um, these these men existed. Um, there's less physical evidence uh, as far as the New Testament goes of uh, the apostles themselves outside of the Gospels um, and the fact that they wrote them. Besides church traditions, church traditions tell us a lot more of what happened after Acts um, and, and can be somewhat reliable. They're not the gospel, they're not the Bible, but they, they could be taken with a little more than a grain of salt. Um, when I think of kind of the logic and reasoning behind me believing that every word in the Bible is true and that the gospel is true. I, I like to think of the story of uh, Gamaliel and the Sanhedrin, where they, the Sanhedrin has the apostles, and they're like, let's kill these guys and get this done with for good, right? And Gamaliel speaks up. He's, he knows the people are already fired up because they killed Jesus. And he, and he said, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may be even found fighting against God. 2,000 years later, Christ's church is still alive and doing his work in me and you. So I, 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 when I think of, you know, just a, a, a kind of a confirmation and affirmation for me, I like to think about that story. I just wanted to kind of add that on to what we've already been looking at is kind of physical evidence of the Bible. And there's a there is a ton, a ton more. I've just been looking at some major things that people critically try to attack about the Bible and, and tried to pick out some really significant stuff that they found. But there, there's much, much more evidence that you can look at. Um, for example, uh, in Genesis, uh, all the places that Abraham visited, where he was from, they, they all, as they found some of these places, they all kind of fit the mold of what the Bible says they were. Like the city of Ur, they found this big temple to the, to the moon goddess, and Abraham's dad was uh, the sun god priest and all kinds of stuff like that. 
Um, but it, there's, if you go looking, you can find a, a bunch more. I don't want to take up too much of your time this evening. But uh, I want to leave you with uh, one more verse. Every word of God proves true. He's a shield to all who take refuge in him. Proverbs 35. And this applies to what I've been talking about tonight with the, with the archaeology. The longer it's gone on, the longer it's been kind of a scientific study, the more and more the word of God has proved true in history. And, and the more and more it will continue to uh, as people are allowed to work and, and, and search for things like this. Uh, it's kind of a slow process because only 10% of the possible areas uh, and city sites that they could have even been looking at in Israel have even been turned up at all, that they've, they've only really delved into about 10% of those sites. And then even after they get into those places, it has to be, the, the, the pieces have to be sent off to a lab and then analyzed, and then it takes even a few more years to publish. So it's kind of a long process. So as, as we're getting things, there's, there's more new things already being discovered. And uh, next week, I would like to talk to y'all about um, the canon of the Bible and proof of its authenticity and uh, uh, proof of the, uh, the, uh, the authorship of, of the books of the Bible and an earlier writing. Like I, like I was pointing to earlier, uh, that Rimmer guy, he was saying that there's no way the Bible could have been written in context at the time. It had to have been written later and it, and it couldn't be accurate, right? So we're going to look at why it's accurate and why we can know that it hasn't been changed significantly from the time of its initial writing until now. So that's what we're going to be, kind of be looking at next week. Um, but for tonight, uh, if anybody's got any questions about any of these things, I know kind of went through it kind of quick, and there's a lot more I could have talked about, but uh, if anybody's got any specific questions about... Yes? Uh, some of them are in museums. Um, Oxford is one place. Um, there, there's a British museum with like 10,000 tablets that haven't even been looked through for information from uh, the Assyrian Empire, for example, um, which some of those tablets, the ones that have been looked through, have talked about uh, interactions between the kings of Judah and Israel and the tributes that they were uh, being paid from the Israelites. And a lot of those tablets, because it takes a long time to go through all that stuff. I mean, they, they have piles and piles of them in, in a basement of one of these museums um, that, that they haven't even gone through. Like I said, it's, it's a long process to, to, to get through any of this. Uh, some of them are. Um, there should be a bunch in that, they're opening up a new museum of the Bible I believe, and uh, is it in D.C. where they're opening that? Anybody know? Yeah, there should be several things in there when they open that. Um, oh, yeah, a lot of them are in the, the Hebrew Museum in, in, in Jerusalem or in, Tel, or in Tel Aviv. 
Yeah, we'll be talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls next week when we're talking about authenticity and authorship and why the Bible is accurate. This week we kind of covered, you know, there's no way, there's no way uh, that the Bible is true. And next week we're going to kind of cover the lie that there's no way that everything in the Bible is, is correct as it was originally intended. Yeah, well, that's, that's not entirely true. In Iran, they actually have some really large museums of uh, the different empires that had capitals uh, and, and a lot of large cities in Iran. Yeah, they're, they're pretty destructive in, in nature, period. Never mind. Okay. Um, Rahab's house. Um, I could talk about that real quick. Jericho, in the ruins of Jericho, there is significant evidence that what the Bible says happened happened. Uh, for instance, um, in the in the grain stores underground, they found burnt grain uh, still still in its canisters kind of, or broken open, but anyway, it was still there and it was burned. If any other power would have gone through, uh, unlike the Israelites who God told not to touch anything, grain was like gold then, you know, remember manna, manna was getting cut off about this time for the, for the Israelites. And that grain would have been something significant that they would have wanted, but God ordered them not to take it. So they, they burned everything. And you know, there's, there's evidence of a, a wall collapsing, yeah, inward on itself, and, and, and there's a lot of stuff like that, Avery. Thank you. Good question. Good question, Avery. Good yeah, there's, there's a lot there in answers in Genesis if you want to extract, especially from Genesis. But I wanted to cover an area tonight that's not as well covered, which is, you know, the time between the New Testament and, uh, and Genesis, the, the time of the kings and the judges and stuff like that that people really question because that's, you know, closer to the time that, that, the, that the Bible was written. All right. Lord, I thank you for allowing us to be here this evening. I thank you for everybody here. Um, God, just give us a hunger uh, for your word and a hunger to... Expel any doubts from, from our faith, Lord. And Lord, just remind us all the time that there, there are satisfactory answers uh, in your word and, and in extra biblical history that, that points to your word being truth, Lord. And that the more we find the... the the more, we, the more we can believe because you, your word has not been proven false and it won't, Lord. Hey, even though people have been trying for hundreds of years to prove your word false, Lord, and I thank you for that. And I, I thank you for the, the evidence that you've left behind for us and that has been preserved underground, that, that we've been able to see physical evidence that uh, tells part of the story of, of what's in your word. And Lord, just be with us this week. 
as, as we try to uh, live out what we, be, what we believe and, and help us to become not only stronger in our own faith, but uh, better many apologists or evangelizers by uh, learning some of these things that, that we can point out to people. Not as, and, and help us to remember it's not for uh, argument, Lord, but for furtherment of your kingdom and that we should do any, any pursuit of more knowledge with humility and we should present it in the same way, Lord. And uh, Lord, I just thank you and, and praise you for who you are and I, I, I just, I'm just uh, privileged to be here and uh, I just thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.